On this week's edition of New York Now, an update on New York City's migrant crisis and a new edition of On the Bill. Then, Paul Rodriguez is the Republican nominee for state controller this year. He joins us to discuss his campaign. And later, we explore a new program from the State Education Department to connect teens with civics. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. It's difficult sometimes to imagine the scope of a crisis until you can put a number to it. This week, that number is 17,000. That's how many immigrants seeking asylum have been bused to New York City from other parts of the country since the spring. And that's really overwhelmed the city's shelter system. So this week, the city started setting up new shelters and camps for those immigrants starting on Randall's Island, between Manhattan and Queens. New York City Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul have asked the federal government to get involved, but so far, no word on that from the Biden administration. In the meantime, Mayor Adams said this week, more shelters are coming, and soon. And so uh, Staten Island and other uh, communities, they are going to—everyone is going to see assignment seekers. So all the calls that I'm getting from elected officials, all the calls that I'm hearing from people of saying, you know, um, please not here, uh, that is just can't happen. This is a citywide crisis, and all of us are going to be impacted. And Staten Island is going to be impacted like the other four boroughs. And that brings us to a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about S-81, also called the Access to Representation Act. Most people know that if you're charged with a crime and you can't afford an attorney, you have a legal right to have one paid for by the state. Those are public defenders. But it's not the same in civil cases, including deportation. In fact, the U.S. has a totally separate legal system for immigration. There are special immigration courts where those cases are handled. But because deportation proceedings aren't considered criminal, there's no legal right to an attorney. That brings us to S-81. The bill would add a new legal right to counsel in state law for immigrants facing deportation, including those who found themselves in New York City in the last few months. Many of them will inevitably wind up in immigration court. And they're 10 times more likely to win their case if they have an attorney, according to the ACLU. Senate Judiciary Chair Brad Hoyleman sponsors the bill. It's pretty fundamental. At the end of the day, when you're in a complicated, labyrinth-like legal system, it's a matter of sometimes life or death, whether you get to stay in this country and having a lawyer can make that difference. Of course, the bill would also cost the state money, and we don't know how much just yet. We'll see if it moves when lawmakers return to Albany in January. But we're going to drop the news of the week for this week's show and look ahead to November. Last week, we spoke with state controller Tom DiNapoli, a Democrat who's up for re-election this year. And if you don't know about this race, you're not alone. 18 percent of likely voters said in a recent poll from Siena that they didn't know who they'd vote for. DiNapoli has won the last three elections, and he's now running for a fourth full term. But Republican Paul Rodriguez, the party's nominee for state controller, is hoping to end that streak. 
Rodriguez was born in Queens and spent most of his career in the state's banking industry and working in finance. He now works in development for the Archdiocese of New York. And you might have seen his name before. Rodriguez ran for Congress almost two decades ago and was the conservative nominee for New York City Controller last year. We spoke this week about his campaign for state controller, what brought him to this moment, and more. Paul, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. So I want to start by introducing you to our viewers. You haven't been on the show before. We've talked about you a little bit on the show, but can you tell me a little bit more about your background? What brought you to this moment? Well, on a personal level, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, born in Queens, uh, to working class parents. Uh, who unfortunately separated shortly after I was born. So I was raised by my single mother uh, in Queens, but also um, we, she left and I was raised partly in San Juan, Puerto Rico, mm. and then in Roswell, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. Basically as an only child and, and really um, having to work very hard from very young, I worked my way through school, uh, got my uh, college degree and eventually called, called my way into a job at the old Solomon Brothers. So I came back to New York then for my adult life, started out my career as an equity research analyst. That for those of you who don't know that what that is, <laughs> uh, when you hear in the financial media, that's the, that's the person who says, oh, for example, Goldman Sachs put a buy rating on PepsiCo stock with a $15 price target. That's the kind of thing I did. Yeah. So I used to do in-depth analyses of companies and industries. Uh, and I have had the, the great fortune of, of in a way, stepping into the nonprofit sector and the faith-based nonprofit sector of the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, but it, it's just been, um, it's been an incredible ride. I'm married. I have three daughters, the oldest of which uh, got married uh, earlier this year, mm -hmm. uh, 27 years old, and the other ones are uh, 15 and 11. Uh, and I'm hoping um, that my oldest doesn't quite make me yet a grandfather, <laughs> because although, although I tend to look younger than most people think, uh, you know, yeah, I'm getting might, up there. It might actually be an advantage if you're a grandfather now. <laughs> exactly. But like I, I read one time about Brad Pitt. He said when he went through his midlife crisis, he bought a Porsche. I can't afford a Porsche. And neither can I. <laughs> I don't think most New Yorkers can. So you ran for New York City controller last year on the conservative party line. Yes, I was recruited. Initially, we were trying to go for the Republican line. Um, and at the time, it seemed that they were all going to coalesce around a, an individual candidate, both a Republican conservative. Didn't actually work out that way. I won't necessarily go into the details. And even though I ran as only a third party candidate, I did quite well, particularly within the history of the Conservative Party. I got about five and a half percent of the vote, mm. uh, about over 59,000 votes, which compares to only 20,000 or so registered conservatives in the city of New York. So I got about two and a half to three times that amount. And I think that showing is something that impressed enough people to then they come to me and said, would you be willing to consider running for state controller, and I turn them down many times, but then uh, <laughs> it's like they say, you're asked to serve, then you, uh, you answer the call. I don't do this as a vanity project. I don't do this to aggrandize myself. I really do because I want to help people. I love the state of New York, and I believe that we're in a difficult place right now, and we need some new ideas and some different perspectives from what we've been getting. Mm. So if you're elected, you would have a four-year term, to start out at least. Uh, tell me what you would want to do over those four years. Do you have any big ideas that you would want to really shake up the controller's office with? Well, frankly, there's two main functions that the controller has. One is to be the primary watchdog and provide oversight over any activity where state funding is used, including the $220 billion um, state budget. On the other end, 
the controller is the sole trustee, meaning the, the principal person in charge of managing the state's roughly $270 billion pension fund. Now, that's basically, if you think about it, it's about half a trillion dollars that one individual can exert influence over, and yet most people don't seem to know who the controller is or what the controller does. Yes. In terms of the oversight side, I believe that the office has been underutilized in terms of its full capacity. Uh, everyone, where a lot of people seem to agree, I was corrected today that not everyone, but let's just say many people, particularly in the political arena, seem to agree that my opponent is a very nice man. He, uh, he's not really the type of person who wants to rock the boat, stick his neck out too much. He's willing to go after petty corruption, uh, $5,000 here and there. But I do believe that there's very big, large problems in the state that should also be looked at and, in fact, should be prioritized, case in point being this $637 million no-bid contract for COVID testing that was given presumably to uh, a donor of the Kathy Hochul campaign who had not donated really in the past, but that particular year, coincidentally, of course, uh, happened to give $300,000 in donations. Right. So those type of things. There should be room to be able to do a lot more of that, and I believe that's been lacking. So I think there's a lot more to be done in that. And then on the other side, with uh, the pension plan, I believe, frankly, that is irresponsible and unethical for any uh, elected official to be using that pension fund, the value of that pension fund, uh, and the power that comes with it as a tool to push whatever personal politics or, or narrow agenda that they may have. So, for example, our incumbent controllers at times criticized hedge fund managers, saying that they're, you know, they're, they, don't have, they don't share our values, mm. they don't share our point of view. But then, in many ways, he is managing, in, in certain aspects of the pension plan, as if it were uh, a hedge fund. So I don't think pension, public pensions should be managed like private activist hedge funds. I think the primary drivers of, of the investment management decisions within the public pension plan should be, is it prudent, is it ethical, and is it legal? And then from there, other things can come through. I want to circle back to the pension fund if we have time, because it's really important. But I want to talk about oversight for a second, sure. because I think when we talk about corruption and misconduct in state government, which, as you remind our viewers, we have no short supply of here in New York, I think that is just such an important role in the state controller's office. Is there anywhere specific in state government that you would want to narrow in on in terms of your auditing power as state controller if you're elected? Is there anywhere that you want to just dive right into? First and foremost, and this may sound glib, but I assure you it's not, I think one of the first places I need to look at is within the controller's office itself. Mm. Not, uh, not to suggest that there aren't so many, many very good professionals within the controller's office, but I'm reminded that a few years ago, uh, Mr. DiNapoli hired a gentleman named Nafnur Khan. And only a few years after he was hired, maybe about two or three years after that, he ended up getting embroiled in his own pay-to-play scandal, where right. he received uh, about 100, I think officially the figure was about $100,000 in gifts and cash, uh, but basically to funnel business to two particular brokerage firms who were compensating him. So I think it's very difficult if, as a controller, your responsibility is to root out that corruption and to ensure that the state remains clean, you have to make sure that your own office is clean and that the, the appropriate controls are in place. So I think it's very important to make sure that the operations that I'm going to be overseeing are functioning properly so as to ensure that we are 
be able to do our, our oversight job for the state. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think when you talk about that, too, there's also this this part of this job that you have to consider independence. We, when we talk about independence, we're usually talking about somebody like the lieutenant governor or the attorney general, but you also have this tremendous power, as you said, in the state controller's office. So let's say you win in November and Congressman Lee Zeldin wins in November. How do you make sure that there is a firewall there between you and that governor to make sure that you're doing your job as a check on state spending? Well, one of the reasons that you've probably seen why the attorney general candidate Michael Henry and I have done a lot of uh, work and press conferences together is because we are supposed to be those independent watchdogs. Right. Um, in, and we're supposed to be more apolitical in that sense. So it's a very important thing. And my attitude has always been, and even when I ran for city controller, first of all, I can work with anybody who is at the executive, regardless of party. But by the same token, I'm not going to show any preference or favoritism towards anyone um, in the executive, of course, I am part of the statewide slate. I support Congressman Zeld, and I think he is the best choice uh, for governor for the state of New York. And I think everyone within our statewide slate can bring a lot more, a lot newer perspectives and really some much needed oversight that I believe we're lacking, some much needed leadership. But by the same token, as controller, I'm going to do my job and I will go after whoever, I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, conservative, libertarian, I don't care. My objective is to serve the people of the state of New York because I think they've been taken for granted for much for far too long. That's one of the dangers of entrenched one-party rule. People who are elected don't feel that they're really beholden or that they really need to be held accountable by the voters. And I think that needs to change. You know, if, if you are elected and the congressman is elected, there's also a good chance that the legislature will still be in the hands of Democrats. The assembly in particular is a Democrat stronghold. The Senate will see that, how that works out. Um, I'm wondering, because I've asked this question to people running for this office before, do you wish that your office, that this office would have more power than it does now? Is there anything more that you wish the state controller could do? For example, do you wish that you didn't have to refer things to a prosecutor? Maybe there's a special prosecutor at the controller's office, which is like not an idea that anybody has ever said before, I don't mm -hmm. think, but I'm just spitballing here. I actually don't have a problem with referring because I don't think the controller is necessarily in and of, its, in and of itself supposed to be a law enforcement arm. I think they should work in conjunction with law enforcement when necessary. But I don't think mm. necessarily the controller should have uh, subpoena power or anything of that nature, at least not at this point. Perhaps if once I'm in the office, I'll have a different attitude towards it. What I think one of the biggest challenges is that I don't think that very powerful bully pulpit that is the controller's office is utilized well and efficient enough. And there's nothing keeping the controller, whether they can look at a specific contract today or not, from commenting and from expressing opinions or from um, expressing certain values or certain concerns about conflicts of interest, about optics of something. Mr. DiNapoli sometimes says, listen, it's not illegal for donors to give money and to receive contracts. True. But the idea that, and because it's not illegal, and I cannot prove there could ever be any quid pro quo, it's just out of sight, out of mind. If you have that attitude, well, is it any wonder that pay-to-play continues to happen, even happening in his own office? You need to be able to read between the lines, go beyond uh, just what you see right in front of you in terms of the numbers. That's the purpose of auditing, is to deep down and, and, and investigate. And if 
your attitude is, well, I can never prove it. Well, let's be honest. This, these sort of things are never written down prior. You're not going to find an email that says, uh, hello, thank you for those donations. I'm going to give you this overpriced contract. <laughs> right. <now." laughs> things don't happen that way. And if you, and if you are expecting people to believe that that's how things happen, you're basically just uh, using that to shield your, yourself from, or, or to shield yourself from criticism due to your own inaction in going after it. It's really interesting. The office of the state controller, you're right, nobody really recognizes the power of the office, but it just has so much power, which is why it, when we talk about races like this, it's so important. And mm -hmm. I appreciate getting to talk about it. Uh, Paul Rodriguez, a Republican running for state controller. Thank well, you. Thank you so much for your time. It was a great privilege. Thank I appreciate you. it. And a reminder that Election Day is November 8th. But turning now to a story this week about education in New York. A new program from the State Education Department is getting students more engaged with civics. State officials say the program is designed to teach kids how government works, why it's important to get involved, and what they can do to change it. More in this story from producer Catherine Rafferty and me. Take a look. What is the purpose of public education? What does a sound and basic education look like? New York State has a clear definition of that. About two decades ago, the state's highest court held that the opportunity for a sound basic education means the state must offer the skills necessary to, quote, function productively as civic participants capable of voting and serving on a jury. So that's powerful. That is a constitutional right of, of every kid in this state uh, to be well prepared to exercise uh, citizenship uh, attributes. And the schools were definitely falling down on that. Michael Rebell is executive director of the Center for Educational Equity at Teachers College, Columbia University, and founder of Democracy Ready NY a coalition of the leading groups and stakeholders with a goal of preparing young people for civic engagement. Four years ago, the State Board of Regents created what's called the Civic Readiness Initiative that was to determine how best to promote civic preparation in public schools throughout the state. New York Education Commissioner Dr. Betty Rosa says the initiative is important to engage students in how civics can impact their communities. We're building agency by truly developing students' abilities to elevate and give voice uh, to these key issues in society. As part of the initiative, Rebel was named chair of a special task force on civic readiness. That panel was created to provide recommendations on the civic readiness initiative. Two years ago, the task force presented recommendations, including a definition of civic readiness. That's described as, quote, the ability to make a positive difference in the public life of our communities through the combination of civic knowledge, skills and actions, mindsets and experiences. Rebel says that definition is important because it not only covers civics, it targets the importance of media literacy and critical thinking. It speaks not only about civic knowledge, which is important, understanding how government works, separation of powers, rule of law, those kinds of things. But the definition also emphasizes civic skills. And that means uh, critical thinking. It means media literacy, which in these days is absolutely important, knowing how to use social media and the internet correctly. 
how to distinguish accurate from inaccurate information. Along with that definition, the task force also recommended a framework for a civic capstone project and a seal of civic readiness. That's a formal recognition that a student has a high level of proficiency in terms of civic knowledge, civic skills, civic mindset, and civic experiences. To earn that seal, students have to finish the requirements for a Regents Diploma and score on a special point system geared towards civic engagement. Those points can be earned in a lot of different ways, like reaching mastery level on a Social Studies Regents exam, completing a service learning project, and more. The program launched in more than 300 school districts this fall, after a pilot program last year. Angelique Johnson-Dingle is the Deputy Commissioner for P-12 Instructional Support at the State Education Department. Uh, education should not just simply happen to our students. It should happen for our students. And by giving them the ability to target something that they are passionate about, something that they recognize that they would like to work on, helps them to feel empowered and really impacts their social-emotional learning. Shenandoah Central Schools in Saratoga County was one of the districts that participated in the pilot of the SEAL program last year. Lisa Kissinger is the academic administrator in social studies there. We asked them to make presentations about what they had done in their extracurricular activities um, that that they felt made the connections between what they had learned in their government classes and their civics classes to uh, their experiences in the community. Um, so we were able to award 19 seniors the diploma seal last year at graduation. So we were excited about that. And teachers who've been involved in the program so far say it's been successful. Bob Kaiser, also at Shenandoah, is a social studies teacher who worked closely with a group of students who earned the seal. We really gave them an opportunity to earn points for many different uh, avenues, including work experience, so that many of them were out doing jobs in the community already, so they could do jobs and get, get it through there. Why not give them credit for being involved in our communities and making a difference and showing them how they're already doing it? Um, and our hope was that would only not only give them credit for that, but encourage more kids to be involved. City Waitaker graduated from Shenandoah High School last year and is now in college studying computer science. For her SEAL project, she started a chapter of the club Superposition, an international nonprofit geared toward bridging the gender gap in STEM fields, science, tech, math, and engineering. It felt like I could do something at the end for someone else. Because I still remember, even in my STEM classes, I used to look around and I used to find like two or three other girls. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, but it is progressively getting better. Like a lot of people are talking about it. So we just wanted to like start a chapter at our school to help others get to learn more about it. There are other strategies underway as well to get younger generations involved in civics. The League of Women Voters in New York is also a member of the Democracy Ready NY Coalition. And each year, they put on a program called Students Inside Albany. About 60 high school students from across the state get the chance to come to the state capitol and learn how public policy is proposed, enacted, and changed in state government. The idea of the program is to learn how to influence public policy, but also learn about your state government. So how do they influence public policy or how, how can they? One, 
One model is what the league does with local leagues and we do community forums, we educate voters, all of that. But we bring in other groups that, um, uh, that lobby or at, make their voice heard in different ways. Bierman sees both the SEAL program and the league's initiatives as ways to show youth how they can make tangible changes in their communities. You need to have the background, you need to know how is this decision made? How, where does it come from? Is it a state decision? Is it a city decision? And what committees? And what's the structure? How does a bill get passed? And what influence can I have on that process? Because that's where they're going to make change. And for Bob Kaiser from Shenandoah, the future is bright for civically minded students who are interested in making a difference. We do have a very fractured society right now, but I think by having people out there hear other people's stories, um, understand what other people are going through that are not necessarily themselves but have a different experiences, it leads to better solutions and common ground if people can understand what other people are going through. Coming off the success of this past year, Johnson Dingle from the State Education Department hopes to expand the program and support districts who participate. Um, we are proud of the growth we've seen in just this one year, but we would hope that more would look to become a part of it, um, looking to provide more resources and supports for schools as districts may look to rework some of their locally decided curriculums to help support um, performing um, and engaging in this type of a course. Ultimately, at the end of it, we want to make sure through an equity lens that that all students feel as if they have a voice, as if the things that are important to them matter, and that um, they can use this course to develop that agency. And that does it for this week, but join us next week for an in-depth interview with Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican Party's nominee for governor in this year's election. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.